Who liked this film? I liked it. Well, of course. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know which one you saw, which version you saw. (laughs) I saw the Netflix version. Wow. (laughs) I heard it was in black and white. Oh, my God. I, I had to change my TV. I thought that my TV was broken. Oh, no. And it's brand new, too. Just not into that. They, you know, I don't know if Alfonso's aware, but they can shoot movies in color now. Crazy. They, you yeah. know, they can. They I, can. I don't know if he's aware of that. <laughs> I think my favorite thing was the marching band. My favorite thing was yeah. the, two, the two geese that were doing it while the cat and dogs were running around them. That, to me, was the most interesting part of Roma. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's why it didn't get the best picture. No, I think so. Oh, the credits were cool, too, because then I, I knew that the movie was over. <laughs> Good God, man. Yeah. Right. I'm going to like this. <laughs> From L.A., The MacGuffin Report. Produced by Inclusive Medium. This episode, Roma. Asian Stereotypes. TV versus Cinema. Roma, nominated for 10 Oscars including Best Picture, Winner, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Foreign Film. For those who don't know, Roma is an autobiographical movie set in 1970s Mexico City, shot in black and white by the writer, director, cinematographer Alfonso Cuaron. Winner of Best Director and Cinematographer Award for Coran, it stars first-time actress Yalitza Aparicio, who was nominated for Best Actress for her role as Cleo, the housekeeper of a wealthy Mexican family. The story revolves around the life of Cleo, an indigenous Mexican woman, as she deals with an unplanned pregnancy as the family she works for goes through an upheaval of a divorce. It's methodically paced, affecting art film from a director that is at the top of his game right now. So... I personally really liked it. I I was uh, I watched it on a plane. I had it on my little phone. I wish I had gone to, you know, see it on a bigger screen. I mean, it's a Netflix film, though, so unfortunately we're not going to get it in the theater. It was I thought it was gorgeous. Like, the cinematography was mind-blowing to me. I really enjoyed it. Every shot, like, if you had taken a screenshot at any point in the film, I thought, you know, that's you could hang that up, basically. I thought it was beautiful the sound design was wonderful um that wasn't something that I thought of until like I was looking at the nominations and I thought about it afterwards I was like yeah you're right like the panning audio really effective um and I guess first time actress Yalitza fantastic job like I was she got me crying and I don't cry that often in movies um I don't want to spoil anything for people that haven't seen it yet but there's I think I think I know which scene she was nominated for so but overall loved it um it kind of reminded me of a a better version of boyhood sorry Richard Linklater um (laughs) that's what I thought but maybe it's because I couldn't connect with boyhood I couldn't but maybe the fact that this is you know it's a film about a woman I connect with it better um, I also have to say props to Horan for putting this together, and the movie is from the point of view of two women, and I thought he did a fantastic job. So he's raising the bar out there for um, filmmakers that are not women that are trying to create films and create content from a woman's point of view. It can be done well. I think I'm going to be somewhere in between, uh, 
I thought it was a good film. Yes, um, Rachel is correct. Quaron knows how to frame a shot like few other directors out there today. I also thought it was nice that this was sort of old-fashioned filmmaking. You know, my daughter is, is 15, 16, and she's just now getting into movies, um, you know, on a serious level, um, thinking of it in aesthetic ways and, and social ways and stuff like that. And uh, she's like, nothing happens in that movie. Everything's really slow. But it's instructional for folks who haven't seen a movie like this. Okay, there's one part very near the beginning where it opens up and she's washing the cobblestones in the courtyard. And then she, she walks in the house and then it just stays there. I mean, the camera just stays there and you hear like some stuff going on. But, and I realized at that point, okay, the reason for this is not just to extend the movie out to 2.30 or whatever, but rather, you know, so you can look at the life that these people lead. Those objects, the stairs without the rails, that's meaningful, okay? But the problem I had with this film actually goes the other way. I thought that Quaron was a bit derivative in this film. Um, I think in this respect, he's a bit overrated. When I saw um, Gravity, which was the other movie that he won the best director for, I mean, to me, that had Kubrick written all over it. Um, it looked like he, he had watched 2001 several times and then made this movie. With this film, I'm sitting there going, oh, that's Fellini when she's giving birth in the taxi, taken from eight and a half, the opening scene of that movie. You know, clearly, I mean, you can watch them back to back on YouTube. Um, there's Antonini in there. There's Bergman in there. You know, and, and this is what I didn't like. This was my hot take about the movie is maybe Quaron is a bit overrated just because he's doing films like they did in the old days. People are not noticing that, you know, I think he's like doing a little bit more than paying homage. And that was my problem with the film. Good film. Great directing, maybe. But again, like I say, a little bit derivative. Not as original as everybody thinks. Walter Hall. I don't know which version you guys saw. Um, so, <laughs> I love that line. Like, uh, so, Quarren, I, I think because this, this year in the Oscars, they wanted to uh, uh, award the cinematography award to uh, during the commercials. Right, and then I think Quaron was quoted as saying, "Hey, let's not do that," because I think he knew he was going to win. Uh, you know, that, that's I think what he fought for himself so he could be on TV. Because I don't know the movie itself. Like, I, the actress uh, Yalitza, I don't know. I just thought she was just all right. I thought her best acting performance is when she was forced to watch that guy do martial arts naked. Like that was completely like I, I understood when when I saw that scene what gratuitous nudity meant because it had nothing to do with anything. Um, I understand like. Maybe he was going for something like after uh, coitus, uh, people are more comfortable. But to do martial arts like naked is completely strange to me. And so that that she was forced to watch that. I thought, wow, she without like busting out in laughter. Great actress right there. Uh, the this <laughs> the story to me it didn't start till like an hour into it. I think there's way too much background. I mean, there's there, they they talk about how uh, Hollywood is too formulaic, but there's a reason why those formulas are are there because they mm -hmm. work. Uh, when I didn't know the story until like an hour in, it's just all set up. You, I mean, I, you do learn that she's a horrible housekeeper because in the beginning she's cleaning the floor, but then there's dog crap like 
like not just one or two, there's like nine pieces of dog crap all over the floor. It's like, what have you been doing this entire time? And doesn't it smell? Like I have a dog. If she poops once, it smells. She's just nothing, whatever. And then like even the uh, the wife chastises her about not cleaning up the, the poop. And so I just thought an hour, I'm like an hour in, I had to take a break. And I was like, I still don't know what's going on. <laughs> and then finally, like I got what's going on. And I agree uh, Rachel, with Rachel, like the, it's, it's shot beautifully. I just personally don't like black and white. Uh, because we do have color now, um, even HDR color, so it's amazing. Uh, but this is all shot in black and white, and parts of it were washed out. But story-wise, I was just like, good God. Like, the, for me, the characters, nothing stood out. Like, there was no one I felt sorry for. There was, I, I felt sorry for the situation. Like, oh, because they're in Mexico. Was it during the whatever, I think, 60s, 70s or whatnot? 70s, yeah. 70s, yeah. I mean, I felt sorry for the car because it was too wide for the carport. <laughs> Why would you buy a car that wide for that small carport? I don't get it. The most refreshing, one of the most refreshing scenes was when the wife bought that smaller car. <laughs> and she had no problem getting into the carport. Yeah. And I thought, oh, you couldn't do this, you know? And I think that was her, like, moment of triumph. Like, hey, my husband's cheating on me. He's gone. I'm going to just get my own car because I, I, I hate it when he bought this wide car. But now that we got this small, small car, I'm my own woman. That was her feminist independent moment, I thought. And then, and then I think soon after the credits rolled and then I jumped for joy because I didn't have to watch the movie ever, ever again. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just it, – it, Roma, yeah, I have to say this. I, I don't want to go out and say it's a bad movie. I'm just going to use Chris Rock's line of it was not made for me. I just wanted to comment on a couple of things. Um, yeah, it was interesting. In screenwriting, we talk about the page 20 moment. And, and, and they also say that one page of script is one minute of screen time, right? So if you watch the movies, especially the Hollywood movies, you watch enough of them, and on page 20, 21, 22 minutes in, that's when the script turns, mm -hmm. right? We've been introduced. Mm -hmm. Right. The page 20 moment in this movie is about 52 minutes in. Yeah. Right? So there's a lot of setup. So be prepared if you haven't seen it before. The other thing I wanted to say is this. There should have been a special award this year for most evil character. Because forget Thanos, you know, forget David Duke, forget Dick Cheney. The most evil character in movies this year was the guy that made her pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> he's in it for three he scenes. He was awful. But they he's a total so well. bastard. They yeah. cast so well. He's the worst. He's the worst. It's oh my that God. Mexican machismo that a lot of um, like Americans were not aware of because we choose not to learn about Mexican culture. But it's that Mexican machismo like, you got pregnant. That's your problem. That's your fault. Oh, Actually, wow. it's more like it was your fault. Yeah. It's your fault you got pregnant. Yeah. I don't and know why you're coming to me. And he threatened her yeah. life and the baby's life yeah. on and top of And he called her it. a servant. You yeah. Know, like but he's upper class. Yeah, right? the worst <laughs> of it all, though, is when he forced her to watch him do martial arts naked. Yeah. That just, I just was See, like. I think that the, the reaction you were getting was what Quaron was hoping for. That like, oh, oh my God. Like, same thing with her finally getting a car that fits their driveway. Yeah. Like that final like relief like oh, oh good thank goodness like this asshole is out of the house and she can get her like a car that works for her yeah i think that was that was the point of the moment and i thought it was communicated really well like i was feeling those same things you were feeling like why do i have to watch this guy like swing a shower curtain rod around naked like i don't want to see this and it's like oh but that's the point i mean going back to looking for the page 20 moment and looking for the plot, I don't know that that was the point. Kind of like in Boyhood, it's not, I didn't think, you know, I wasn't looking for a plot in Boyhood after so long. I was like, oh, this is this is a slice of life movie. This is 
a series of vignettes that they're using to this is actually semi-autobiographical part of Alfonso Cuaron's um, upbringing I read somewhere that he um, he the little blonde boy the youngest boy is kind of the character that plays him the younger version of him but um, yeah if you watch the movie you notice like there's there's a huge riot and there's a shooting yes. in it and then oh it's time to go have a baby like there's no resolve to it but that's kind of the way life is like you don't always get an explanation or an answer or maybe it comes years later well, but 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 the the negative bit about that is this there are certain movies where you get to the end and nobody's learned anything you know, and I hate that because, you know, it's almost like it, it's not quite as bad as the it was all a dream. <laughs> However, that's an old trope. When, yes. when, when this happens, when you go through the movie and nothing changes and nobody learns anything. Right. I sit there and I go, what was the point? Yeah. See, I'm OK with that. But maybe it's because I'm partially a nihilist. For me, number one, there's no superheroes. So that was a big fail to begin <laughs> with already. Right. But if you threw a superhero in there. To me, there's still the story is so faint. It, it, I don't even I can't say subtle. It's so faint that like at the end of it, I'm just like, well, I I didn't learn anything. Like I was just saying, like what well, you well, know? They didn't learn anything. Yeah, they didn't. Like yeah, <laughs> nobody it, learned. It's anything. just the same thing. I mean, the one thing is they did kind of remotely care about each other. Like in that beach scene at the end, when you know they're like, oh my god, you gotta come and save you know the daughter. I don't even remember her name. And then the mother comes over and then, you know, it's like, okay, they, they kind of care about each other. But I don't know. I, for me, like, like you were saying with uh, Rachel with a slice of life type thing. For me, entertainment is escapism, mm -hmm. whether it makes you think, cry, sure. laugh, uh, be joyful. Yeah. And for me, when, when there's no story and it's just kind of bleak and if that's just supposed to represent life, I have my own bleak life to, to look at with no <laughs> theme and, and no plot. Uh, I, I don't need to pay money to see it on the screen. Yeah, this sure, is the thing. Sure. This is the thing. It's art. It's not life. That's the thing. So, 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 so when I hear that, you know, that's how life is, I kind of like write that off because this is a movie. Okay, it's not life, you know. It's mm -hmm. supposed to be like mm -hmm. a movie, yeah. you know. So life certain, is supposed to be like there's life. There's certain <laughs> expectations right. that Quran is not meeting for your standards, which is well, totally yeah. acceptable. You, you know I what? Yeah. Totally respect I mean, that. The, yeah. the scary part for me with Quran right now is that I feel like he's turning or he's like kind of on the path like a Soderbergh, where they're mm. tired of Hollywood. Mm. They're tired of all these notes, studio notes, production company notes, actors' notes, actors' own writers. They're tired of all that, and they're just like, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing. And Soderbergh's been doing stuff where he's like, oh, I'm going to shoot this like, uh, like on an iPhone or I'm going to shoot this like in one take where, or I'm going to do no edits. I'm going to do all this. And no, they're not commercial successes. And I know for a lot of these like quote unquote art filmmakers, like, commercial success may or may not be in, in their uh, realm of goals. Koran, he got the Oscar. He did Gravity. Everything's great. You know what? I'm going to shoot this in black and white to piss Walter off because I can and then, and then there's no. And there's I'm no, gonna do it on Netflix. Yeah, and, and, and release it on Netflix and release it in 140 screens theatrically. Right. Because I can for three weeks. Yes. And then, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, what's your next thing gonna be? Is he gonna? I feel like he's at that crossroads right now, where it's mm -hmm. like, am I gonna go down the path of doing my own thing, or am I gonna make stuff that people will want to go watch? Because to me, I think we've lost that entertainment. Where, um, it's like, hey. Like with, the, with all the Oscar nominees this year, like I think with every year, the past like 20 years, they always do these things like how many people have seen these movies? 
And it's always mm. like a small percentage. But then you take these popular movies and then they say, oh, well, the popular, the popular people, they don't, they don't know what a good film is. Okay, but when you walk out of a film, you know, mm. hey, I had a good time. Or what the hell was that? I just wasted $40. To watch this movie, because I'm including popcorn and jujubes, but like you, you, you wasted all this money. But if you if you just sit and, and just listen and realize, hey, there's something to a popular movie. I don't think anyone else feels this way. Anyone else at this table feels this way about this movie. But at the end, I was like, I want more. I do. Like I fell in love with the characters, their relationships with each other. Like these two women. Um, the mother and Cleo, they coexist side by side, going through a lot of the same problems, but they don't, you know, they're right there. They can comfort each other. They can talk to each other. But this class divide, mm -hmm. this employer-employee relationship keeps them apart. And then at the end, they're kind of able to come together. No, it's not, you know, complete. It's not the Hollywood ending we want, but do we usually get that in life? So I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. You're in luck because episode two through thirteen's on uh, Netflix 4K. Yes, <laughs> yes. Asian stereotypes in Hollywood. Did Ken Jeong's character in Hangover perpetuate the Asian masculinity stereotype in Hollywood? Can 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 I start this one? Would that be okay? Uh, I, I I just want to get on the social soapbox for a couple of minutes. I just want to say this. Dear white people, especially white men, so let's make an agreement for the next decade, decade and a half to listen more and speak less. I mean, the reason why I'm putting out this appeal is that I recently caught the movie, uh, the documentary film, uh, The Problem with Apu. Have you guys seen this? I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's, it's a documentary about the Simpsons character. Yeah, it's uh, and in Indian American culture. I tell people that I watched this film or that have you seen this film? And the first thing they invariably say is Apu's not racist. Simpson's not racist. And, and it's just like, what are you defending here? Like, like how do you know? Like, like shut up and listen, you know, to the folks who it affects. You know, it doesn't, you know, to some extent, white folks, it doesn't matter if you think Apu is racist. Okay, it matters if Indian folks think he's racist. Let's, especially white men, uh, let's chill out. Let's listen to these folks on these issues, and that is what I'm going to do right now. Thank you for your time. <laughs> well, to to add to that, to what you're saying, Oz, um, I thought this was an interesting juxtaposition. I brought up earlier about how Green Book. One of the awesome things about Green Book is that Asian people in there when there there was no reason for Asian people to be in there. But what I thought it was interesting, and I doubt this was on purpose, you had Viggo Mortensen and his family playing caricatures of Italian people. And they, they were, I'm sure it was authentic, but it also seemed cartoony for people who aren't familiar with the Italian culture. But yet the Asian people on there had no accent at all, which at that time, that was un, that's unheard of. Forget about the fact that there's Asians at that time, that the fact that they had no accent, to me, is a, is a reflection of how sensitive We've become, we be, being Asians, we become so sensitive to every little thing. Our parents still have accents, and we're but we, at the same time, we deny the accent. We deny the stereotype. We say, hey, I don't talk, talk that way. That's fine. But my, my dad does. My mom does. I have no problems with the way they speak. I feel like Asians, we have a problem with the way our parents speak. And thus, that comes out when people make fun of us. 
I think we got to stop being hypocritical about these things. And so to like with the Ken Jong thing, I don't I don't look at what he did as a representation of all Asians. I look at what he did is he's putting food and drinks on the table for his family. Yeah. To me, what Ken did that was out of his own volition, he actually brought it up to Todd Phillips. Hey, how about I jump out naked? And he thought it'd be funny. And it, and it was funny. And then all of a sudden it became, oh man, you're, you're, you're doing the stereotype. People have accents. It's, it's not a big deal. Antonio Banderas, who acts in America with an accent, and no one makes fun of him for doing that. I mean, it helps that he's like, you know, really good looking and everything. But I think because Ken's not the alpha male, good looking guy, we have this, we have this issue here. But if, it, if like Henry Golding did it, I don't think anyone will complain. It's like, oh, he's a good looking guy. He can do whatever he wants. But I think we do need to kind of pull, the, like pull in the reins and just kind of relax a little bit and realize like, hey, we got to be okay with the accent. I just don't feel as, as a subculture in America, Asians are okay with the Asian accent. Like they, we try to deny it, like embrace it. Like if we embrace that it's sexy, that'll, that leaves room for others to embrace our accent as sexy. But we, because we demean it and we condescend towards it and we try to reject it saying, oh, I don't speak that way, we're, we're denying that it's sexy. Rachel? I feel like talking about masculinity is probably not in my ballpark. <laughs> um, I will say It's though, awesome, by the way, masculinity. Yeah, I should try it sometime. <laughs> the British accent and the Indian accent, there's like a cultural, historical context there and an imbalance of power. So I think that is problematic. But I mean, that's beside the masculinity point. I, I don't know. I want to ask you, Walter. Like, I think a lot of Asians are embarrassed by their parents' accents because as kids, other kids would make fun of them. Do you, is that your experience? Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. Because That I, also happened to Italians when they first came over. Mm-hmm, it happened mm-hmm. to Irish people when yeah. they came over, Scottish people. Yeah. It happened to them too. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, they benefit from right now, culturally, the Scottish accent is sexy or it's Irish accent is sexy. We don't benefit from that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe later, maybe 10, 20, 30 years later, mm-hmm. we'll benefit from that. But right now we don't. And so if our own people, in my opinion, if our own people can embrace the accent, then why would non-Asians embrace it? Mm-hmm. It, is, it was my line of thought. On yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I definitely think there's going to be, this is going to take some time just because I, I still feel hurt when I'm watching like Breakfast at Tiffany's or something. You have Mickey Rooney like oh, with his left teeth doing a terrible accent. Oh, like Jesus. it just takes some time to like let that, you know, let let time pass and mm-hmm. to make space for that confidence to grow because I don't know, I'm sure like in the next few years we're still gonna get like bad, you know, yellow face people like doing Asian accents and it's just like it's gonna sting for a while. But yeah, I do I think Hopefully, with time, you know, the Asian accent will become normalized just because there are so many of us with yeah. accents. I, I totally. But the thing is, to me, is like, if I don't mind people complaining about like other people making fun of the accent, I don't really don't mind at all. What I do mind is, is when they keep quiet about when they do a caricature of another uh, race and they keep quiet about that. But when it's them, it's like, oh, hey, hey, we can't do that. The contention in the problem with Apu is this. Because, you know, of course, like, Indian-American kids love The Simpsons, right? Every kid loves The Simpsons, right? And, and despite the fact that Apu is in it, here's the problem. Some of them even think he's a funny character. We all know, or at least when the show started, you know, every single 7-Eleven, it seemed like there was an Indian guy there, yeah. right? I mean, it's not true, but that's what it seemed like, um, especially in this part of the world. And, but, but their point was is that 
he was the only Indian guy yeah. that anybody mm-hmm. saw it's on TV. It's a representation issue. Right. And in this respect, crazy rich Asians may not give every uh, Asian actor a job, but it's going to put some positive pictures yes. out there in the public consciousness because the movie was so successful. And that's your first step. Yes. Now, in the future, yeah, every once in a while, you will have the stereotyped characters. You will have the overdone accents, but hopefully you'll have all these other positive examples as well. Yeah. Yeah, and to and to take it back to Ken Jeong, he's not Harry Shum Jr. He's not, you know, Henry Golding. Like he's not going to play those sexy man roles. He's a comedian. He's hilarious. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. talented. We should let him do what he's supposed to do. Like we shouldn't expect him to try to be like Sean Connery or you know Tom Cruise. Like he doesn't want to do that. Yeah, and the fact yeah. that he did it by choice, it wasn't somebody, some producer telling him like this is what you need to do, and he like reluctantly like consented. He was going for the We have to think about power. Even in that situation, though, I'm still completely okay with it because it's that's their job. Their job is to make the movie make money. They're not all good at their job, but that's their job. You know, I don't know. I mean, there are petty people in Hollywood, and there might be a producer out there that's going to, like, you know what? I want to humiliate Ken. I'm going to make him be uh, naked. And there, there might be people like that. But. Let's just be to be practical about it. If if the producer or director said, "Hey, we want you to do this because we think it's gonna be funny," that's their job to do that, and it's Ken's job as an actor to listen to the director and the producer because they sign the checks. And if if a producer director like Rachel, you were saying, I would be like, "Yeah," I would still say the same. I would feel the exact same way because that's their job to do that. And and the thing is, this guys, how funny is that scene? We're still talking about yeah. it. You know, it's like 12, 13 years. I remember seeing that the first time. You are blown away by that because it's so shocking. And then within seconds, it's so funny. Yeah. That, that one particular bit that we're talking about is, is a real turner for that movie. That's what really puts it over yeah. the top for the first time. And you are laughing hysterically. And I'm okay, so good. And I'm, okay, and I'm okay with that male nudity. I wasn't okay with the male nudity in The Favorite and Roma. But I was okay with the male nudity and hangover because it felt organic. It felt part of the movie. Whereas Roma, it was, to me... It I, felt gratuitous. Yeah. Too. I hate to say gratuitous because I love gratuitous nudity. But in, in Roma, I just <laughs> felt it was just unnecessary. Like, I, I get it. After you have, uh, you know, relations with, with, with someone, you're more comfortable. And he's kind of trying to show that. But then to, like, get the shower rod, like, to unscrew the shower rod and be like, yo, I'm going to show you that I can do martial arts naked. Like, it's like... All right. That was meant it. to make you feel uncomfortable. I, yeah, show his vanity. I yeah. At least, like, we're, we're Speedos. That would like, or like Tidy Whities. That would have made me uncomfortable. <laughs> Tidy Whities. <laughs> I mean, granted, I didn't want to see it. The movie was set in the 70s. That's right. That's right. Okay. I didn't want to see it either, but it would not have been the same scene. <laughs> no. No. The, the Fruit of the Looms would have, yeah, like, thrown the, it, it over the top. Yeah, Fruit of the Looms would have been fine, you know. They probably turned the money down. He was too much of an auteur. Maybe, yeah. I don't want the sponsorship. In that scene, whose idea do you think that was? Do you think it was the actor's idea to be naked, or is Alfonso's idea? To me, it was, like, that, when I was watching that, I was like, no, so this is what girls mean when they say gratuitous nudity like i get it now because this felt totally gratuitous and unnecessary to the plot it's like that famous scene from swordfish when Halle berry first went topless Mm. it was completely unnecessary yeah like completely gratuitous there was yeah it was out of nowhere but in monsters ball you got it like that it was it was you know i don't want to say required but it felt like it was part of the movie and, you know, part of the story. Well, it was one of the more disturbing bits of the movie, too. That's the thing. I mean, yeah. Yeah. it wasn't <laughs> gratuitous at all. No, it was, it, like, it was, it was just, you know, that yeah, thing. But yeah, it's not easy to watch. Roma, I don't know. 
Has the TV serial and TV technology replaced the feature film as the most influential medium in American culture? Walter. I think people are overlooking the value of going to a movie theater, watching it on such an enormous screen with great sound system where it allows you to immerse yourself in, in that movie. I think people are kind of like diminishing that value. So they think, oh, if I watch it at home on my 80-inch 8K TV, um, it's the same thing as, as the movie theater. And I completely disagree with that because the fact that you can get up, like you pause the movie and get up, takes you out of the movie. Uh, whereas a theater, you, you're holding your pee in because you don't want to miss something. You, know, you can't have them rewind it. You know, um, it, that, that whole immersion, I think, is just underrated, and, and, and the, the value of that has been diminished in people's minds. Um, TV, I think, I love TV. TV, to me, is the, by far the best form of entertainment, in my opinion. Like, I, I just love it so much. Uh, but having said that, I, I don't know that it's replaced movies. I think the way we, I think TV, I think the way we watch TV has become more important than the way we watch movies. because. The way we used to watch movies, we go to the theater, we get, we get the five, $10 popcorn, we get all that. But now it's like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to wait till I can stream it on like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. And I think that's where how we watch TV has graciated itself into how we watch movies. And I, that I, I think is bad. There's something to like getting in your car, taking a date or going with your friends or going by yourself to a movie theater and watching this movie as opposed to just sitting at home and watching something by yourself on your TV screen. I mean, they're trying to do actual meals now at some of these theaters mm -hmm. where you can buy like entrees. And waiters like cross your screen. Yeah, <laughs> and it takes you, and every, they're doing everything they can, in my opinion, to take you out of the movie. Uh, I, you know, like it, it's just to me, like I, I'm, I'm, I can't say I'm a traditionalist for this reason, but like I don't like flashbacks in movies. I don't like uh, when uh, there's a narrator because it takes me out of the movie. And then if I have a waiter coming, hey, sir, <laughs> <laughs> where, where, would you like some? Like, Is dude, this your beer? Yeah, like, dude, <laughs> come on, man. Rachel? I really, to, to, to your credit, I really enjoy the ritual of getting in my car, meeting up with my friends, and, like, going to the theater. I don't go to the places where they serve you beer in the middle of the movie, so <laughs> I'm not fancy like you. Um, but... <laughs> I enjoy that uninterrupted, like, this is the event. I'm, I'm also, like, an, I'm an extroverted introvert. So, like, going out to be around crowds of people but not actually interact with them is, like, my jam. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, that's right. I'm not lonely. But, like, I'm not talking to anybody. Um, but, yeah, I just really enjoy that ritual. And for that reason, that's why I still go to the theater. Like, some, I'll go when, you know, they're doing the $5 Senior Tuesday sort of thing at theaters. You're, you're a senior now. Well, you know, it's not for seniors, <laughs> but it's like on Tuesdays, it's five bucks to see a movie if okay. you're like an AMC Stubbs member, yeah, yeah, which yeah. I am. Shout out. Um, sponsor me. Yeah. But, are are uh, we getting paid for that? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like that's like that's a that's like a, if, if you can't afford it, like they make it possible for you to still go to the cinema and see movies. Um, but yeah, I just I really enjoy that. But at the same time, like I'm a millennial. I love streaming. Like, I don't own a TV. I don't, like, subscribe to cable. Netflix and Hulu is what I have. Like, I'm on, like, a family plan with, like, my friends. It's And it's so convenient. But, like, I get what you're saying about, like, being able to pause and, like, go do something or, like, you know, and it takes you out of it. And it's 
it's just it's just different now but having felt like I've grown up with YouTube and with streaming it's I guess I don't I don't notice too much of a difference but like that access that accessibility of being able to watch whatever you want whenever you want like I recognize is like a privilege and not something that everybody grew up with so it's like something that I assume you know it's something that I take for granted it allows your generation to bail out at any time yeah which is why there's more divorces now <laughs> is there well, is my, there... I mean we're just getting married later I'm actually glad you brought that up because because I want to talk a few statistics here okay so this is at least a two-part question the the two questions are has TV technology replaced movies? And has TV serial format replaced movies? Okay, so my answers are maybe and absolutely not, respectively. Okay, here's why. Since the early 1990s until now, and I, I look at this all the time because I'm a geek, okay? The average American household has consistently seen two to four movies at the cinema a year. Okay, now, don't you watch more than four movies a year? Hell yes. Even in the 90s, we went to Blockbuster, right? And we watched a movie a week at least. Oh, sorry, I, Rachel, Blockbuster is a video store where we used to go <laughs> rent videos. I don't know so if you gotcha. might be Translation for yeah. millennials. Gotcha, thanks. <laughs> uh, you know, but I mean, the point is, we always, or for a long time, we've had access to watching movies at home. And I think it's great for the industry. I'm not going to pay 12 bucks to go see, you know, this, I don't know, take your pick, Peter Jackson film, okay? But then maybe I get the video and I like it. So then the next one, I will go pay to see, right? Or I'll buy the paraphernalia or I'll, you know, um, I don't know, tell my friends about it. Go see it at the movies because it's probably better there, you know? So I, I think that the home technology question only enhances movies because you're always still going to want to go out once in a while is that what the stats are showing okay now let's talk some stats as far as does tv aesthetic take over film absolutely not here's why tv is still ephemeral as hell right i mean what have been some of the most popular tv shows of the past few years lost who talks about lost anymore people forget tv in uh 2017, I looked this up. Big Bang Theory was the most popular show. Okay, That gets about 23 million viewers a week in that year. 13 movies that year sold more than 23 million tickets. Okay, And, and finally, here's this. Just in a philosophical level, what TV show has affected American culture Okay, to the wide extent that something like Casablanca did or Do the Right Thing did or, or, you know, several other movies that we can mention. Get Out. I mean, Big Fat Greek Wedding even. Okay? Mm -hmm. I think that any of these is more, is more important than any TV show ever, except for maybe Star Trek and Twilight Zone. What other TV shows have really stuck with American culture? Meanwhile, we just talked about Birth of a Nation 1915. We're not going to talk about Edward Murrow anytime soon. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're not going to talk about... 40 soap operas anytime soon. But we still remember Birth of a Nation. You know, we still remember Gone with the Wind. We still remember Casablanca and Citizen Kane. These things are even still relevant to culture. But that was TV in the past with production values like Game of Thrones. Has TV changed so much that it is now considered the same as film? 
Well, time will tell, but Breaking Bad and The Wire are gone now. And I mean, when The Wire was on, people were like, this is the greatest TV show of all time. Okay? All of those people are probably still watching Seinfeld every week, and they're not watching The Wire anymore. See, this is the, this is the other thing about movies versus TV, especially all of these hyper-serialized shows that we're getting now, where the whole thing is about what's on next week, is that there's no rewatchability there. You know, now Sopranos is making a comeback now. You know, 25th anniversary, people are getting back into that. Okay, it happens sometimes. Friends, as I understand it, is getting very popular among young people again. Okay, it happens sometimes. Seinfeld is still on the air, okay? But there's nobody clamoring to watch I Love Lucy. I think the, the <laughs> difference, uh, one of the differences is, uh, like the specific examples notwithstanding, I think one of the differences between uh, feature films and TV shows is uh, people talking about it is, like Wire, I've, I've heard it's a great series. I haven't seen it myself, but I heard it's a great series. It's, I think, what, four or five seasons? HBO is like, I think, 12 or 13 episodes. You're talking like 60 episodes. That's very difficult to watch. That's 60 hours of TV that they have to watch, as opposed to a movie, hour and a half. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot more accessible time-wise. So, like, I, I think um, Sons of Anarchy justif justify uh, two good, good series. People, people should watch them. But when, when people hear about it, they think, oh, six seasons each. Ooh, like, I don't have that kind of time. Especially if you're not caught up. Yeah, if you're not caught up, it's like, I have to watch Game of Thrones. I'm still two seasons yeah. in Game of Thrones. And then so they're thinking about this. But it's like, oh, watch this movie. It's simple. Either whether they stream it or go to the theater, it's simple. It's done. And they could talk about it. I think the fact that we have so much access to television outside of the um, airing schedule, we've run out of things to talk about. At work, or wherever you go to meet people, hey, did you see Game of Thrones? Oh, I didn't see it yet. Don't, don't talk. Don't say anything. And then now the conversation's dead. Oh, uh, yeah. But I used to hate it in the day before the internet right. when yeah. you'd go and you'd watch The Simpsons and then you'd go into the office and everybody was talking about that. It's just like, oh, so we're all having our separate experiences and then we come together and talk about it. You know? But that's just, missing you, now. You don't like that? No, I couldn't stand well, it. Well, then so you like it right now. Your this is your time because that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I know. Because, yeah, because people are like, oh, don't spoil it for me. Don't yeah. spoil it for me. And, be, and that, I think, it's changed the dynamics of how we, how we speak to each other. And also, there's other things like text. But we can all go see the same movie. We can see the same movie, right. yeah. Uh, but I think movies, because accessibility, it allows people to continuously talk about Citizen Kane or Casablanca. Because mm -hmm. like, if you haven't seen it, I can go rent it from, well, Blockbuster. Or you could download it. Amazon Prime. Yeah, Amazon. You could, and you could, we could watch it. But like a whole series, it's like, oh, that's so daunting. Like, oh, I, I don't have like, you know. And then, you know. But to me, to me, the other thing too is we have this thing called binge watching. Mm -hmm, yes. Okay. Well, let's compare it to something else. Let's call that binge drinking mm -hmm. as opposed to like, you know, getting a nice bottle of wine and enjoying it. Which to me is like the wine, right? No, but instead we're going to stay up all night and drink this whole case of bad beer. Yeah. You know, binge watching, right? And, and, and how does a binge drunk work, right? You don't remember anything the next no. day, right? And to me, that's TV. And, and binge that's watching, TV. and to me, binge watching has uh, influenced current television shows, like streaming yeah. shows, not network shows so much, but like Netflix shows, Amazon shows, Hulu shows, because there's no theme in each episode right. because they just release it at once because they know they're going to binge watch for 13 hours and just watch the whole thing. It's about what's next. It's about watch the next episode. Yeah. And the thing is, people get so offended when I say, it's just a soap opera. But it is. That's the format. You know, let's put everybody on a cliffhanger every week. Yeah. Know? All I, I have to say is I'm not mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't well, know. But, but I... you know what, though? You, your generation should be mad. And I'll tell you why. Because TV show, the quality of TV shows has gone down tremendously. 
um, people ask me like, why do I watch Korean dramas? Is it because like I like the because I'm girly and I like the romance stuff? Half of that's true, but, but the, the real reason I watch is because they have to bring the viewer back next week, and network TV shows has to bring the viewer back next week. There's a responsibility there. But Netflix shows, Amazon shows, Hulu shows, they're released at once. There's no responsibility to bring them back the next week. So you can go through three or four episodes where nothing happens, but it's no big deal because the next episode is right there. So the quality of the shows, now your generation has been trained to know it's the entirety of the season that I'm going to judge, not each episode. This is, this is what streaming has done. It's killed what they call in science fiction the bottle episode, right? There's no way if I go tomorrow and watch, you know, season four, episode two of Game of Thrones, and I tell somebody, mm, it wasn't that great. They'll go, oh, you have to watch all the stuff before it. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, you can, here, watch this episode of Seinfeld. You know, it has a beginning, middle, and an end. You don't need to have seen everything before it and after it. Yeah. Right? The bottle episode has disappeared. And I think that's a real problem. Well, it's manifested. Because I don't want to watch 13 I think we're talking about different types yeah. of shows but that's, just that's, because. Yeah, that's manifested itself in Law and Order. CSI. Procedurals. Yeah, they're the procedural yeah. shows. It's manifested that way. Yeah. Old fashioned network is still around. Yeah, I guess let me backtrack about the shows I binge watch because yeah. I tend to watch, I, I thought about this just now, I tend to watch shows that have already been aired. They are um, episodics on mm -hmm. network TV and then they get put onto Netflix. Mm -hmm. But I can see a little bit of what you're saying with, um, I've been watching a little bit of uh, that Marvel show, Jessica Jones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I can see what you're saying about like it just it's just it feels like a rolling thing where yeah. like it's just it feels like it feels more like a soap rather than like TV. But yeah, you you can't just start that David Tennant purple guy series in the middle. You yeah. can't just watch yeah. one of those episodes, right? Because it makes no sense and it has no context, you know. And, and to me that's just not right. You know, I mean, in grad school, we got this hammered home to us all the time. What is the story? Said Aristotle. A story has a beginning, middle, and an end. And you watch these TV shows, and there's no beginning. There's no end. There's no middle. There's nothing. This like, is not a story. What about it's like Roma. Lost, Okay, though. sorry. Because <laughs> Lost is a, Lost was episodic network TV, and you couldn't just Actually, it was watch. serial. It was serial. Because, serial. Yeah, it, you it couldn't just watch one episode, yeah, though, no. and pick it up from yeah. the middle of the season. Yeah. What, 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 Breaking Bad. To me, what ruined yeah. Lost was the was the last episode. Yeah, well, a lot I, yeah. of people said that. Uh, Walking Dead. I don't know if you guys watch Walking Dead or not. It was the perfect show for Netflix because you had all 13 episodes right there to watch. Because if I watch that, because AMC has very slow development. Breaking Bad is very slow in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Walking Dead, they're all very yeah. slow. Then once you get into it, you're stuck. But it's very slow. In Walking Dead, the first season, I'm like, whoa, this is dumb. What is this? But then... I, after the first season, I was like, oh, this is really good. Because it convinced me that it's good. But each episode, nothing, nothing like, yeah. what is this? Nothing's, it's so slow, nothing's going on. Um, but by, by the time the new showrunners came, every episode, it was like, whoa. Like someone, there was a time that a, a black guy died every week. Uh, that's an inside joke with Walking Dead fans. <laughs> there was a there was a one there was one season where only, only black people died, and then black um, people finally caught on. They're like, "What's going on? Why are only black people dying? Are we watching Confederate?" And then, and then they stopped. They stopped killing black people. <laughs> well, it's like that line in I think it was Scream Two, where you know the murders are just the murders are just about to start again, and there's this black guy who's a cameraman for the you know crusading reporter, and he just looks at her and he goes. Brothers like me don't last long in situations yep. like this. And he walks off and yeah. he's never seen again. Yeah. That's brilliant. This has been the MacGuffin Report with 
Rachel Wong, Oz Davis, Walter Hall. Produced by Inclusive Media.